High Sensory People podcast. I'm Alicia May. I'm a high sensory leader, coach, and creative empath. And I'm Jane Elizabeth Aston. I'm a high sensory leader and spiritual connection coach. We're high sensory people, and we're passionate about raising awareness of the HSP trait and reframing it from being highly sensitive to high sensory and having high sensory intelligence. Did you know that 20 to 30% of the world's population are high sensory? We want to increase our visibility, change how the world sees us, and inspire and empower all HSPs to own their amazing qualities and unique gifts. We would love you to join us on this journey. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. And today we're going to be talking about addiction and compulsion. So our experiences of this and our views of how this can can work for high sensory people. So it's such a big topic and we think we're probably going to need two rather than one episodes to cover it. So um I mean, where where shall we start, Alicia? Should we maybe start with why we want to do this episode? Do you want to kick us off with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the reason why is because, I mean, for me with my journey, uh, having had the experiences I've had, you know, it's really enabled me to look at people with drinking problems. I don't like the word alcoholic, to be honest. Again, it's it's too condescending, you know, because... I've realized that having had my own journey with alcohol, um, these are just people in pain. These these aren't horrible, nasty people, um, for the most part, anyway. You know, maybe there's one or two out there, but for the most part, you know, we're in pain, we're suffering, you know, we're trying to numb stuff, we're trying to escape, you know, we're trying to either connect with a version of ourselves that we can't do sober, or we're just trying to ignore what's going on or what needs to be resolved, you know, from my own experience. And to me, it's just, again, reframing people with drink problem. It's it's so, it's so common. That's, that's the truth of it. Um, you know, and quite often people um, look really normal. You know, they're high functioning. They could be CEOs. They could be a dustbin man. They could be anybody. It's not just one size fits all. It's everybody. It's rich people. It's poor people. It's people that are stressed from life. It's people like myself who were, you know, I was running away from grief and trauma. You know, it just, it really, it's, yeah, it's not a one size fits all. It really is so broad. It's so many different people from all sorts of backgrounds. And there's, there's no shame in it. You know, I, I used to, again, with this sort of sort of society narrative was I was, you know, I really shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to admit this. When I was very young, I looked down on people with drink problems because I couldn't understand again with my conditioning. It was, well, these people should know better. They're my elders. They're older than me. They should know better. They need to get a grip. But now I've grown up and now I'm an adult, you know, and had my own journey with, with alcohol I've realized, shit, actually, these are really normal people that are having a really, really tough time um, and quite often denying themselves what they really, really want. Um, What about you, Jane? Why do you want to do this episode? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, interesting to kind of hear your, yeah, what you said about the word alcoholic. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm going to come back to that. I want to do this episode because it's been such a big part of my story and my journey has been going right into addiction and compulsion and coming out of those acting out behaviors and healing from those. That is my story. Um, you know, and, and I think it's important to um to talk about our experiences of it. And we have different experiences of it. And I think we have different, we we view the problem in a slightly different way because we've experienced it differently. And I think it's just really helpful and important to put both of those sides of the story out there. Um uh, that's probably as far as we'll get this episode. Um and I would imagine it will be next episode rather than this one when we talk about, you know, what addiction and compulsion can look like for high sensory people, you know, whether it's different to how it looks for non-HSPs. And, you know, and I think next episode, it will also be really important to perhaps talk about suggestions for what people can do if they're struggling with some of these things based on our own experience, you know, the kinds of places to go for help and support. Um, so I think, you know, that's why I wanted to do this episode. It's such an important part of my story. I mean, it's, it is the mm. key piece. Yeah. of my story um and you know just to kind of talk to, uh, to my own view of the word alcoholic I used to feel exactly the same I hated it it came, it gave me a, a mental image of you know an old man on a park bench wearing some you know horrible old trousers hung um it kept up with a piece of string rather than a belt drinking a bottle of whiskey or vodka um, in a brown paper bag, you know, unwashed, probably homeless, that sort of thing. But, you know, the fact is that I am an alcoholic. I am an addict. And um, that word has negative connotations. But in itself, to be an alcoholic in recovery is a wonderful thing. I'm grateful to be able to call myself that, um, you know, in in the kind of 12 step programs that I have worked in a number of different fellowships, the first part really and the essential part of the journey is owning it. Go, I am an alcoholic. My body reacts differently to alcohol. I put one in and it sets off a craving for more. And I am pretty much powerless to stop that and also before I've even had the first one I'm in so much pain just with my head being you know as it is that I will in the end take a drink or a drug or I might you know um, I've also had struggles with food with relationships with spending you know you name it I've I've sort of done it um, and gone into it to a fairly painful level. And um, so with all of those things, it's really important for me to say, you know, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict, I'm a compulsive debtor, I'm, you know, I'm a codependent, uh, you know, I'm a food addict, I, just all of those. I've said all of those things in the past. And it's been really, really important in, in me coming to terms with the truth, with my own truth. It's not everyone's truth, but it's mine. Uh, and in always reminding myself that I'm an alcoholic, 
that's me without a drink, I am still prone to the sorts of thinking, the sorts of internal condition that made me want to do that in the first place. But of course, it also has to do with, so it's part, I believe it's partly for me, it's genetic. My body reacts differently. It's also partly to do with the environmental context. And um, Gabor Mate, you know, talks about addiction being, you know, the response to trauma. And I think that is also absolutely true. Yeah, that was my journey. Absolutely true. So, um, yeah, so that's why I wanted to cover it. Mm. Um, And I've already talked a little bit about my experience, but, you know, I just I think it's just really interesting, isn't it, that we see it very differently. And actually your recovery has also been different and your triggers for going into that, you, you know, into problem drinking were very different as well. Absolutely. You know, and we'll cover the different types of drinking problems where you've got the functioning alcoholics and the and the non-functioning alcoholics, because they're, they're two very different types of people, aren't they? You know, different sort of journeys and intensities and, and, and behaviours, aren't they? So, well, they are. But, but ultimately, there's all sorts of different ways of cutting this pie. We can look at how it manifests on the outside, you know, are people still living their lives or are they sitting on a park bench? And that's one way of cutting, you know, cutting the cake. But another way is looking at what we have to do to recover. Mm. And that is the way that I classify it generally. It's people who can get over it on their own largely or with a bit of therapy or, you know, whatever. And then there's people who, like me, need to be in a recovery program for the rest of our lives. You know, I am a true unfortunate or truly fortunate, depending on how you look at it. This is the thing, because, you know, up, up until, you know, the last sort of decade or so that to me, there was always this association of association of if you have a drink problem, oh, you must have a weak character. Yeah. And and actually, you know, using these on and interacting with people, doing my own journey and things like that. It's actually got nothing to do with weak character at all. Um, no. If anything, people like yourself that have been there, done it, got the T-shirt been clean and sober for for 13 years 14 years don't take a year away yeah 14 no and I'm gonna do that you know 14 years like my god if that isn't proof of strength of character I don't know what is you know to live with that sort of um challenge every day and to not give in to it my god that's not a weak character at all complete opposite well it's funny I think, you know, in the uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is what all the 12-step programs are based on, I mean, it's an incredible book. It was written in, I'm going to say 1936, it might be later. But anyway, it was written a really long time ago and uh, and has changed very little since its first edition. We're on the fourth edition now, but the the, the kind of the, 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 the main bit of the book is completely as it was written. So it's quite old fashioned in its language, but it talks about how alcoholics can be very strong willed in other areas we can be very successful. You know, we can want the best for our families. We can be very moral. We can be this, we can be that, you know, we can be really strong willed, but when it comes to substances, <laughs> absolutely no will at all, or maybe have self-control for a while and then completely lose it. Yeah. So, yeah, it is not, to my mind, about a, a weakness of character at all. Mm. Um, it is about 
an, a complete powerlessness or a complete inability. Um, but I know, you know, other people experience it differently. I mean, I think you've experienced it quite differently from me. So, I mean, I'd love to, you know, do you want to like tell your story? Yeah, no, happy to dive in. And, and also, you know, I, you know, again, the statistics might come in in years down the line, but it's the, the association of high sensation seeking with drink problems. Yeah. You mentioned about biology, trauma, um, personally, personality type. You know, I've got a colleague who's who's really, and we're going to have her on soon about when it comes to the Myers Briggs personality. And apparently, if you're a certain personality type, you tend to be prone to that sort of addiction sort of personality. Um, and then what else was going to say? Oh, yeah. And then being obviously HSP, you know, I, I wonder what the stats are with HSPs versus non-HSPs, you know, as to whether, you know, being HSP, you're more common in, you know, having those substance um, cravings or addictions or um, challenges or whatever you want to use them. But yeah, I mean, for me, my drinking problem was mainly um after my brother died uh mm. before that i was i suppose technically a binge drinker mm. um so my high sensation seeking side would kick in um i didn't l- on one level i loved going out for a night out dressing up the high sensation seeking side loved it the dancing love dancing music that sort of thing um, but quite often I didn't know when to stop drinking on those nights. Mm. I really like, you know, I remember being um, 17. So I was underage. I was asked out by um, a friend's brother and we were drinking cider and it put me off cider for about 15 years. I think it was strong, but it was something stupid, mm-hmm. um, as you do when you're 17. And he'd been drinking for like, you know, a good, three or four years pretty hardcore and me being 17 half his size was like well if you can do it I can do it and I was you know a couple of hours later I was throwing up in the girls toilets um because there was this attitude of no if you can do it I can do it um which isn't good um you know I did like to live sort of slightly on the edge and, and push my limits to my detriment and I I got a kick out of it. I definitely I definitely got this kick out of how much can I drink before I die? Kind of, you know, it was this real, you know, before my alignment process, there was this there was always this part of me that was, you know, I you know, I wanted to just see how far I could push myself, mm. you know. So quite often and yeah I wouldn't remember how I got home and I would not necessarily get home in the most safe and sensible manner and often feel that unstoppable craziness um but yeah so up until sort of your typical age of sort of 18 to 26 I suppose it was this you know I might not drink anything for a week or two or three weeks but on a night out I would go crazy and mix them and yeah not not wise not wise at all but I was always brought up with alcohol in the sense of my parents never hid it from me uh mm. there was often wine uh, with a Sunday roast um mm. and I'd have half a glass so there was never a oh my god I'm 18 right I'm gonna go nuts and drink something that I've never even smelt it was not a big deal for me at all drinking it was like no oh, I've been drinking my whole life like big deal like whatever um but for some reason keeping up with everybody on a night out 
out. It was like, oh, I've got to drink as much as them sort of attitude. And this, yeah, I want to kind of punish myself in a weird way. Just I wanted to just, yeah, see how much I could take. Um, and i got to be honest, I love the taste. Um, I have been, I suppose, I can't think of another word, addicted to that tipsy feeling because of the high sensation seeking side and you know, the empath and the energies and stuff. I love that tipsy state. It's a really lovely state to be in. Um, so I was always keen to be in that state as often as possible. Um, then, yeah, my brother died really suddenly, really tragically, took his own life. Um, and that was the beginning of, of pretty much a year of particularly eight months, if not almost a year, but definitely um, most of the year, drinking every day to fall asleep because I was so beyond traumatized. Um, for the first month, I couldn't sleep without the light, which is weird because I need it pitch black normally. But mm. um, it was very intense, very overwhelming. Um, if it was all blacked out, it was as if he would suddenly appear and that was just too intense and just, yeah, as if his sort of spirit or ghost of him would just, you know, be in my face in the dark. And it just, I just couldn't cope with it. Um, I mean, this is 11 years ago now. Um, but yeah, I was drinking every day to stop my mind from just, it was just too much. I was so traumatized. It was to calm myself down, to escape. And there were days where I would overdo it, um, but I always, it sounds really weird, but I would always have a bottle of like port or sherry. <laughs> I wasn't really a vodka drinker um, because I'd ruined, I'd had vodka as a youngster and ugh, didn't like the taste. I was like, well, I like sherry, I like port. Um, and I thought, well, they're pretty high volume, but they taste good. Like it always had to taste good, good for me. Yeah. There, there was always a taste thing. So yeah, so I would drink at least, you know, comfortably half of that, which... I know to a lot of people doesn't sound like a lot, but what a drink problem for me is somebody said it recently is it's not how much um, is a lot. It's how much is too much for you as an individual. And I know individually that was too much for me. Half a bottle of sherry a day. That's not good. Maybe to some people that would be normal and that's nothing because they're, 200 pounds but when you're like 90 pounds that's not good it's not good and it was the reason you know I was I was avoiding dealing with grief you know in in the western culture we are shit when it comes to tools of grief we're so shit at it we avoid 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 it's so overwhelming we just avoid it and that's what I did um and I realized it was going to be a long road to actually knuckle down and work through my trauma and my grief with that situation. And on top of that period of time, my mum had a spectacular psychosis six months before he died. And that traumatised me more than I realised. So she was compromised. She was on um, medication. And of course, my dad was compromised because his wife was compromised. He was looking after her 24 hours because she really couldn't be left alone for very long. She's absolutely fine now, totally back to normal, thanks the post-menopause she's on form. Um, so I'd lost three people. I'd lost my three main foundations. And I've never really, you know, it took me a long time to realise how 
bad that was, how difficult that was. Um, you know, we're very good at just get on with it, just get on with it. So I just got on with it. Um, and alcohol was a really good um, option for me back then. I've waffled. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you would have needed something, right? Mm. It's like incredibly, unimaginably painful events the grief of which you didn't have sufficient tools to you know process you would have needed something to help you through that and half a bottle of sherry or port a day sounds like quite a good bet to me easy yeah it It got you through it got you through and and I'm I'm interested to you know for you to say a little bit about how you started to come out of that daily drinking what was the journey out yeah so it took several months um and you know sometimes I would start drinking at lunchtime if I could get away with it um but I was sensible with it if that makes any sense I wouldn't wouldn't drink and then drive um or, or deal with clients or anything it was you know if I was going home and that was it like get let's get the drink out to get to sleep so I realized about I think it was about six months later, maybe seven. I was like, no shit, it was way longer than that. Yeah, it was nine months later. Um, I think it was like around the April because he died in end of July. It was the following April, I think, around that sort of time. I realised I can't keep doing this. It was just this inner knowing. I can't, it's really hard to explain. Um it's just something I was in therapy um, and I'd gone to my GP a couple of times. I'd been enjoying Valium. I was loving mixing Valium and alcohol. Um, oh, absolutely. Terribly, terribly dangerous, by absolutely. the way, listeners. Don't try this at home, but my God. Yeah, I my loved God. it. Yeah. Loved not it. Not condoning it, not condoning it. Don't do it, but oh, yeah, carry on, yeah. please. Please don't do it, but I did it. Um, yeah, not, not a wise move in hindsight at all. Um, and yeah, my GP stopped giving me Valium basically. And he's just like, I can't keep giving this to you. And it was basically, I was kind of starting to run out of options and it was kind of like, I just knew intuitively something kind of said to me inside, you can't keep doing this because you know what it's going to do to you. You know, the damage. And the sooner, the longer you keep this up, you're just delaying the inevitable, basically. Um, so I went to, I'm going to the GP and talked to my therapist and it took me months, kind of like, I don't want to go on antidepressants, rah, 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 rah. You know, that means I'm weak. That means I'm giving up. And again, all this shame that comes with antidepressants, like what the fuck? It's like, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I don't have that shame now, but my God, did I have it back then of, again, this toxic shame this toxic um, narrative that being on these stabilizers means you're weak means you're pathetic means you're giving up means oh all these awful things Mm. which I'm sorry you know years down the line no bollocks no again whether you're biologically not set up right whether yeah life's fucking tough like it's not easy and if you need them you bloody need them there's no shame in it anyway so lots of umming and ahhing. I um, realised um, I needed something else to help me to sleep. Um, so I went on an antidepressant that helped me sleep, basically. Didn't always help me sleep. 
Um, and I was still drinking with them. Not the best. Don't, don't recommend it at all. Um, and, um, yeah. So I just went on to the antidepressants on and off. It was good five years, I think, maybe six years. Um, and cause I'm chemically so sensitive, you know, I didn't need, need much alcohol to numb me out. I really didn't need much. Um, mm. and then with the antidepressants, again, there were so many times in my life, again, the typical story dated the wrong person and, uh, dated them for too long. It was very up and down. And I tried coming off my antidepressants about three times in the end. And that final time, you know, I really knuckled down, but I took six months to come off them. I had to take it really, really slow. Absolutely. But, um, but yeah, I was, it was, it was rough. And I did start drinking another time later on, a few years down the line. And that was another, you know, walking in the door after work. I was working like six, seven days a week. That typical story, uh, running two businesses in the wrong relationship, um, living a false version of myself and living a version of myself that I thought society expected of me and people around me expected of me. So I started drinking again. Um, when it got really, really bad. And again, I'd walk in the door, I haven't even taken my shoes and my coat off, my handbag off. And I'm just quick, you know, G and T down, <laughs> neck that, yeah. you know, neck the G and T. Then it was like, oh, I felt the buzz, right? I can get ready for my evening now and start cooking, take my jacket off and shoes off. And then that, you know, two, two, three G and T's a night comfortably. Um, and again, that went on for quite a few months. And again, a conversation with myself of Alicia, really, really, is this you, you know, what are you, what are you avoiding? Um, and yeah, just again, had a word with myself and, um, stopped that, but it wasn't easy because that I liked the fizziness. So I went on to fizzy drinks for a bit. Um, I think it was just sparkling water and then eventually weaned myself off. But um, I'm quite hard on myself. So I think that weirdly helped me stop drinking, if that makes any sense. Mm. I would be hard on myself if I drank. Um, I would, yeah, be really quite horrible to myself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's, it's, it, you know, an incre- it's incredible actually hearing you recount it like that chronologically. And yeah, there's things that are really different for me because what you've described is in response to a very, very painful time in your life twice, drink helped you get yeah. through and you relied on it. And it changed the way you felt and you really needed it to do that. And then when you were ready, the voice inside said to you, what did you say? You said, something said to me, something inside said to me, you can't keep on doing this, Alicia. Yeah. And I had that voice too. I think as HSPs, that voice, that knowing that this is not how we're supposed to be coping with life is very strong and Mm. it's that that makes us be quite hard on ourselves because we're out of alignment you know that voice can feel very punishing sometimes and sometimes it is too punishing but it is also that voice that has helped me to get back on track but the way I did it had to be necessarily quite different to you because I that I had the voice but I 
could I still couldn't stop I still mm. couldn't so you know that my story is quite different and um you know I think possibly we'll, well leave that to next time because yeah, but- I want to give it a good a good amount of time with your story because I think a lot of people can resonate with that with your story Yes, thank thank you. Yes, and I, you, you know, like reaching out really to my people, the people I, you know, feel the most, the highest affinity for, you know, or uh, HSPs, but particularly HSPs in twelve step recovery. Um, and I'll just sort of say one reason why that is, and I think those of us who become or who have that propensity to become so powerless over substances, it is because, and for me, it was because it was a response to trauma, but also what the substance gave me was not just relief, and it did give me relief, but it I was looking for God. Right. I was looking for God, and I found God, the divine, something bigger than me. I found something that felt really good and right for a short time. I found that in a wine bottle, at the end of a spliff, in ecstasy, you know, in all the party drugs, with the connection they gave me. They gave me a little taste of the divine. And that's really what I was looking for. And and the 12-step program is fundamentally about how to get back to God, which is what I was trying to do anyway. But I was doing it in the wrong way. I was doing it in the wrong place. Yeah. And I want to add for people that people seem to have these, um, this sort of the connotations around it being like religious but it's not from everything you've told me um it's not in a religious way at all it's about this higher power they just happen to use the simple common word god but it's about a higher power isn't it that that sort of force that's greater than us some fellowships actually just use higher power when i first saw the word god uh, included, you know, like in the steps and the traditions and in, you know, like the books and things. I just thought, what kind of cult have I come to here? This is terrifying. And these people are so weird. But actually, you know, that was just because I so I associated God with, you know, like Christianity, mm. which is great for people if they want to do that. But it never really sat right with me. None of the religions sit right with me. And so I was completely relieved to um, hear and come to understand that 12-step programs are, are actually nothing to do with religion. Some people who work them may be into religions and that's okay, but it's absolutely not that. It's about finding my own conception of something bigger than me, which could be nature, the sea, the other people that I meet in recovery, or it could be, as I have, you know, a, a conception of of, of an entity, a, an infinite entity that, you know, I interchangeably call the divine or higher power or God or, you know, whatever. Um, and that's become really important to me. So um, I will talk more about that next week, but thank you for bringing that up because I think it can scare a lot of people, this thing about, you know, oh my God, if I go to a 12-step fellowship like, you know, Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous or Cocaine Anonymous or Marijuana Anonymous or any of the other many anonymouses, am I going to have to like sell my soul to religion? No, no, you're not. I can promise you that. Um, but it has been life-changing for me. So, yeah, I think next time maybe I'll kind of talk about my journey and we'll perhaps talk about, yes, I think it'd be really good to talk about how we see 
from our own experiences and what we've observed and others, how it, how addiction and compulsion can look different for HSPs. Because I really, I've got some theories around that, that I'm always putting out in the world. And this feels like a good vehicle to do it as well. So um, anything else you want to add before we finish for today? No, again, this is such a big topic. So it's just a case of think, just pause here for now and then we'll continue it on another day because I just think your story is so important and I don't mean to say say it's common um, but it is so many people really resonate with with your journey because it's it's quite common within yes humans but particularly um, HSPs. It does seem to be does seem to be more common than I well yeah anyway it seems to be so So thanks, everybody, for uh, listening today. We really, really appreciate you listening. And I hope you found something, um, you know, interesting or you got something out of of today's episode. And again, another reminder that the High Sensory Tribe is now live through Mighty Networks. Um, So if you do want to join our wonderful community, uh, we know where it's all sorts of discussions are going on, all sorts of topics um, to share and to, yeah, just have these amazing conversations that we do love to have. So we'll put some links in the show notes for you. And um, yeah, thanks again for listening. Yeah, thank you. So the the High Sensory Tribe is free for the first month. So um, because we are very aware that you can't really see what goes on there until you join. That's the thing with the Mighty Networks platform. So it's all a bit secret. So you actually have to sort of join to find out what's going on. And that's why we made it free for the first month. So, you, you know, you can join, have a little look help us build it from the ground up that's what we're doing right now and you know if it feels like it's not a good fit for you then you can just cancel and leave without paying a penny fantastic so thank you for joining us today we really hope you enjoyed this week's episode as always we'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments and please we'd love you to subscribe share and review our podcast Do join us for next week's episode when we'll be continuing our talk about addiction. Bye for now. Bye for now.